This is the Tan Report. I'm your host, Han Trung. A heads up before I start this week's story. There will be mentions of some difficult topics because this episode of the podcast centers around a prison that's long been considered one of the most dangerous prisons in the nation, Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's located in Angola, Louisiana, northwest of New Orleans. It's about a two-hour drive from the city. It's the largest maximum security prison in the United States, with more than 6,000 inmates and a prison staff of about 1,800. Because of its location in Angola, it's most commonly called Angola. But since it began operating as a prison in 1901, it's also been called America's bloodiest prison. All of that has been well documented, and you can certainly Google the amount of bloodshed at the prison. But suffice to say, Angola is a place few of us would ever want to see. I didn't know anything about Angola. I didn't know this, that that was a world that is completely, it is a sub-world. Angola is a sub-world. It's something that... The stories we've heard aren't, don't do it justice then, I'd imagine. No, they don't. They don't. That is a, that is a total different... I mean, imagine, you know, you have, throughout the state of Louisiana, you have all... So Angola is the place where uh, they send the most violent of violence. Or, and, and I'm not just talking about violent of violent in terms of offense. I'm talking about violent, violent of violent of character. With that as a backdrop... Angola would seem an unlikely place for someone to become a minister. And it was unlikely before 1995. Before Burl Kane took over as warden of the prison and took a new approach to the prison population. He called it moral rehabilitation. Kane invited an accredited four-year program at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come teach at Angola. I recently sat down with a man who went through that program while serving a life sentence at Angola. I think a lot of folks wouldn't even think of there's a seminary program in one of the hardest and roughest state penitentiaries in the country. But there is. Yeah, there is. Do all this about theological seminary, which was a novel idea brought in by uh, Warden Burrow King. The best decision, I feel, probably was made for that society. When did that come into play? Like, think, Did I that think, come into play when you were there? Yeah, I think... The first class happened in 1985. Warden Kane arrived in 95. The first class of the seminary, I think, was actually in 96. Uh, at that time, again, I was still going through uh, GED. And so I actually ended the seminary, I think it was 98. He agreed to tell me about his experiences at Angola if I agreed not to identify him by his real name. If we don't use your real name, what name would you prefer? That's a good question. Say Alex. Alex it is. Okay. Alex. The story of how Alex landed in Louisiana's only maximum security penitentiary is pretty complicated, and it starts in the early 1990s. To honor my agreement that I would not identify him, I'm avoiding some specific details about what Alex was involved in or where it took place. What I can say is one woman was shot to death. Another woman was wounded. How should we describe the, the offense that you got arrested for and that eventually put you into Angola? So I was arrested for uh, second-degree murder and attempted second-degree murder. Uh, 
I was convicted for second degree murder. I was acquitted of attempted murder. And so you ask you, I don't know if you're wondering, but how can you be convicted of one crime and innocent of the other and found out get the other? Well, it's simple. I wasn't the person who pulled the trigger. And so in the Louisiana law, there's a statute called principle. And under principle, the statute basically reads, one who basically knows about a crime, you fail to report it, you either aid it or abet it, whether you're absent from the crime scene or present from the crime scene, you're equal partners. Now, the principle law can go either way because it's so, it's so vague and it's general. You can either be charged as a conspirator, which carries less time, zero to 30, or you can be charged as a principal, which carries a, a mandatory life sentence. All right. So my co-conspirator who actually committed the crimes was charged eventually, he pled guilty eventually to conspiracy and received a, a sentence of seven years in exchange for his testimony against you, against me, because I wouldn't testify against him. So the way the system works, okay, well, if you're not going to testify against the person who we know in fact committed the crime, then somebody's we want we want both of you. So they gave him the person who committed the crime the deal and prosecuted me. Now, another caveat or backdrop to that is this. I had police officers testify on my behalf. I had sheriff deputies at the prison testify on my behalf that they overheard a conversation between uh, my co-conspirator and his brother who were the actual two perpetrators of the crime discuss how they were going to frame me. So all that, you know, came out of trial, but let's, you know, I'm not going to dwell into the past of that, but the attempted murder, which was the lady and her daughter, she testified uh, in my case, and she told the juror that I wasn't involved. I mean, all this is documented. You can read it. It's black and white. I still have transcripts. I so the victim of the attempted murder testified, testified basically on your behalf and said that yeah, I wasn't you involved. were not the person. So I was found not guilty for her. Because I was found not guilty. But I was found guilty as a principal to the murder of her daughter because it wasn't disproved that I wasn't aware of the crime. I didn't know anything about the crime. And I, you know, readily admit that I knew what happened. You know, I admit that. But I also say I wasn't there when it happened. And so... Just so I can clarify, so yeah. you admit that you, you knew the crime had happened. I knew the crime had happened. I knew everything that took place. You know, uh, but... I, at the time, being a child, right, 15 and a half, I'm, I'm growing up in the street... You know, there's a code of the street that we don't snitch on each other, you know, anything like that. And so, and we we have this uh, hostility we have toward law enforcement at this time and stuff. And so, you come and ask me about a crime, I'm like, 
I'm not telling you anything. I don't know anything. I didn't see yeah. anything. It's just, you know, it's just that simple. You know, that's that was my position. And so they was like, okay, well, you know, we're going to take you in too. Because we know all of y'all are affiliated with each other in some capacity, right? And so basically, uh, the two brothers just essentially just plotted, you know, as a, as a way of getting off. When I take a step back and look at what Alex shared with me, from the time he was a teenager, then to an inmate at Angola, and eventually to going into the prison seminary program, I see moments where he made crucial choices. I know that sounds simplistic and that it could basically be true for all of us, but most of the time, we're not able to see or predict the results of the choices we make. After Alex was arrested and his case was moving through the court system, he had a choice. He could have pled guilty to a lesser charge and testify against the person he says was the trigger man. But instead, he chose to stay quiet and go to trial. And so I wasn't, for me at the time, I wasn't concerned with being found guilty because I was like, well, I know I didn't do anything, so I'm not, I'm not tripping. Yeah, let's go to trial. You know, that was my position. <laughs> that was my position. I was bold with that. I was like, yeah, go to trial because they actually offered me a plea agreement uh, to testify, first of all, against them. And then when I didn't, when I turned that down and they took a plea agreement to testify against me, they came back and offered me uh, a lesser plea of 50 years, which on that you do 20. And I turned that down. Can I ask you why you turned the plea agreement down when they didn't? Because I didn't do anything. And I, at the time, I'm, I'm believing in a system would work. I mean, I believe that, you know, I was going to get found not guilty. And for the most part, I did get found not guilty. I remember my attorney when the victims uh, took the stand on my behalf and testified on my behalf and identified the persons who committed the crime because they, uh, they had a screen up in the uh, courtroom with everybody's faces on it. And she, uh, she pointed them out in the courtroom. And I remember my, I remember my attorney saying, that old dog ain't going to hunt. Don't worry about it. You know, I remember when uh, the deputies testified on my behalf. I remember when the police officers testified on my behalf. But all those testimonies, it's one thing about all those testimonies, and that is all those testimonies dealt with who pulled the trigger. And everybody that I just mentioned testified, were able to testify that I was not the person who pulled the trigger all the way to the victim. But none of them could exclude me from my culpability of awareness of the crime. And that's where the gray area of uh, Louisiana law kicks in. I could have been charged with conspiracy, which my uh, co-conspirator was eventually charged with and pled guilty to, or principal. And they chose to charge me with principal, and I went to trial, proceeded to trial, and was found guilty for that particular offense. Alex said he and the attorney representing him were unprepared for the prosecution's strategy. Our whole defense was I was not the person who committed the crimes. My defense was not around principle. 
because that was not a discussion at that time. That, ha- that just happened in the course of the trial itself. In a 10-2 decision, the jury convicted Alex of being a principal to the murder. By that time, Alex had already served four years in a parish jail, awaiting trial. He was around 20 years old. Now, you don't hear this often, but while in jail, Alex says he was hopeful because he knew he didn't kill anyone, and that would eventually come to light. He maintained that hope even as he was about to enter one of the most violent and dangerous prisons in the country. Entering Angola, I still was kind of somewhat hopeful because it just didn't make sense. <laughs> you know, it just didn't, it, it, the way it was explained to me and the way I was, it even right now as I was, uh, as I'm talking to you, is just seemed impossible that you can put a person on trial, two people were standing side by side, shot by one person because they were standing next to each other. And you say, well, he didn't have involvement with this one, but he had involvement with that one, the, the other one. And so it's just irrational, right? And so I was still kind of hopeful that all that would play out in the appeal process. At Angola, we always say the first five years is the most important years. Why? Because that's the first five years is your appeal process. After five years, you know you're there. The first five years, you really don't know that you're there. You know you're, you're put there, but you don't know that this is the place that you're destined to die in because that first five years, you're still going through the court. And it takes about five years to exhaust all those avenues of the court system before you no longer have any regress or readiness uh, to the court. What was that process like for you? What were the first five years like for you then? So the first five years, uh, so there are two, two ways of that. So physically, because I was a youth on Angola, uh, physically it was very trying. You know, I was got into a lot of fights. I was assaulted, uh, preyed upon. All those, those physical things happened. But psychologically, you know, uh, I was able to separate the two and just kind of remain hopeful that uh, I'm eventually going to get out in those first five. And when the, my last appeal went in uh, and I was denied, then kind of that... Uh, No longer optimism. Uh, optimism died at that point. Yeah. yeah, you know, and so I went through a, a space, a period of, of, uh, you know, like hell with God, hell with the Bible, all this is a lie, you know, hell with everything, basically. And you were raised Baptist. You were raised a believer. Yeah. I was raised Baptist, very, very active in the church and stuff. And I felt part why I'm not Baptist because I felt like the uh, Baptists uh, turned their backs on me, you know, basically left me in a, in a situation to die. When Alex said that the Baptists turned their backs on him, he was referring to the Baptists in his family, including his mother. 
Where was your family throughout this process? They left me. And that's what that's what I meant. What I was saying uh, about you know the whole Baptist thing—they just abandoned me. Everybody just cut me off. So I was I was in another world by myself for approximately 23, 24 years. Do you blame your family for abandoning you after, I guess, the bad press and going through that process and then getting convicted? Do I blame them for abandoning me? Can um, you blame them? Uh, well, I, mother, my mother and I, you know, we now talk. I don't necessarily uh, dwell on it. I don't. I, I don't necessarily. I, I don't necessarily blame them. You know, never really just giving a thought to it. But I do occasionally make her aware when she tries to. Uh, today she tries to correct me on something or say something to me I say hold up you lost that right when you left me in jail to die you know I do say that to her sometimes so I probably shouldn't but you know I do I, I ask that because for me it's it's hard for me to think of a scenario that just speaking one to one about mothers I can't think of a situation that my mother would abandon me, but I haven't been in your situation. I don't know if she would abandon me if I was in your position there. But yeah. so, like, how did you? How do you process that? I mean, how, what what goes through your mind when your family does abandon you? So for me, uh, I'm for. Is a very religious town. And so for my mother, being Baptist, and my family as a whole, they felt they were doing the righteous thing. So when you look when I look at it from that position, I can understand the positions that my family had taken. But when I you know, like as you just said, when you look at it just from a child's uh, a human point, standpoint, yeah, yeah, human standpoint, you'd be like, how could you? You know, so I, I get it both ways. So I, I don't, I don't dwell on it. You know, I understand again. I understand why she did the things she done, and you know why my family uh, took the positions that they took. You know, but I had to be like the loneliest point in your life if your family abandoned you. Yeah, it was. It was. It was it was very lonely. What's remarkable to me is how soft spoken Alex is. But then again, I haven't met anybody who was serving a life sentence at Angola, so I wasn't sure what I was expecting when I met Alex. He's about six feet tall, bald headed, stocky. If he played football, I think he'd be a fullback, someone you send in to open up holes for the tailback. But as a young man in Angola, his physical stature was different from what it is now. And when you first enter Angola, <laughs> what they do is they throw you with the worst of the worst. Now, so you go through this, you throw, you go through this classification system when you first enter Angola. And so the purpose of the classification system is to uh, size you up, basically. What are the classifications? So the classification process is. Are you a first offender, second offender, third offender? Are you young, old? Are you big, small? 
And so they, they're, they're supposed to pair you with the appropriate uh, segment of, of, of the population. For example, so I'm a first defender. When I went in, I was a first defender. I was 20 years old. I weighed approximately 145. So generally, you want to put that person in a, in a segment that matches him. But all that's just puff and smoke. They do that for paperwork. They, that is not the reality of Angola. When they put you in there, they put you in with somebody that maybe six foot five, three hundred something pounds, been down for thirty years, and here you are, first defender, one hundred forty pounds, don't know anything about Angola. They'll throw you in there with them. Is that what happened to you? You were classified and you were placed in. Yeah, I would just that play, population I would that just, didn't match yeah, you. Yeah, it just throws you in, and so. The cell blocks, they put you, they start you off in the cell blocks, which is the worst place to send anybody who doesn't know anything about prison because the cell blocks is a trap. Straight up, you're in a cell with another inmate, no guards, and you only see a guard one time every 30, 40 minutes. He comes to just to make his rounds, right? Noisy. The cell doors are open. And so inmates, what we call seasoned inmates, uh, would what we call play the cell blocks. And what that means is they intentionally go to the cell blocks, get locked up in the cell box for predatory purposes. So uh, the cell block is the worst place to send any first-time person but Angola knows that. I'm talking about uh, the uh, staff. They're aware of that. They don't care. Throw you in there. You know, it's like sheep among wolves. Alex was an adult, but he says he was only able to read at a fifth grade level. I think to most people, Alex didn't have much of a chance of living what many would consider a good life. He lacked education. His family wanted nothing to do with him. And of course, he was in prison. But even after serving five years at Angola and exhausting all his attempts at appealing his conviction, Alex says he held on to this hope that one day he'd be able to walk out of that prison. Despite what people think, I don't care. I know I didn't do anything. And because I know I didn't do anything to get there, I slept good at night. Because, I, I mean, at night, you can hear people hollering. You can hear people calling out different people's names from the dudes they, they killed or whatever. And I used to always tell people, I sleep good at night. That's, that's, what, that's where that comes from, you know. Like hearing those other voices, it was almost like it was they were being haunted? Yeah, yeah. That's, why, that's where that comes from. You know, you hear someone from prison will say, man, I slept good at night. Because they're, they're coming from that position of saying they know they didn't do what they were accused of doing, and so they didn't. They wasn't hunted by those realities, you know. I'd imagine some people will listen to this and say, "Alex, you're fooling yourself. You're trying to polish your own image and absolve yourself from any wrongdoing." And what would you say to them? I would first say, "I don't care." <laughs> right. That was the first thing I would say. I don't care. But the second point is, I'm not trying to absolve myself from any anything. I admit 
that I knew about what happened. But then as the question of, is it my responsibility to inform what happened? Now, being a good citizen, they will say, yes, it's your responsibility to inform on what's happening. But I, I will say this. Uh, if you keep up with politics, they have this, this, they've been having this thing for the last four or five years in Washington, D.C. about the whistleblower. Some people frown, I'm talking about these are politicians, frown upon the whistleblower. Then other people are like, you should protect the whistleblower. You know what I mean? So it's, it, it, it's just the same principle. It was just on a lower level with me. Should I, should I have been a whistleblower or should I have not? I chose not to be. But regardless, I, yeah. I think we have to go back to the fact that, as you were saying yourself, I mean, you had maybe a fifth grade reading comprehension level at that point yeah, when that you point. were a teenager. And yeah. you're a teenager. I don't think you probably grasped, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I don't, you probably didn't really know the full implications of what it means to inform at that point. I mean, if you were 15 no, and a half. Like, I didn't. When I, so when I, when I was arrested, I had this idea, right, uh, from the, you know, again, street idea that it was. We didn't talk. We didn't tell. That was the, the psychology of my neighborhood. And so that's what I went by. And, you know, I was even taught that in my home. You know, you have to understand the background which I come from. Historically, you know, I understand black culture, black society is not a monolithic society, right? We all have within this community, you know, there's a, there's a mosaic, it's different parts of it, right? But as a, as a generalness of our culture, black culture, we are apprehensive of police, apprehensive of the system based on the historicalness of what blacks have been through. And so in the home of black families, we are taught to be leery of those branches of society. That's a fact. And that, and that we're not taught that because of crime. We're not taught that because of crime or that we're committing crime. We're taught that because we have had historically negative run-ins with that group. I the results haven't been good for, yeah. for black people. And so we are just naturally taught, don't say nothing to them, stay away from them. And if they ask you something, tell them you don't know nothing. Plead ignorance almost. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, so this is reinforced. Not only is, is the street element, but it's also reinforced by the house element. Right? And so here I am, confronted with the with the thing that you're telling me I should not say anything to. And so I didn't. Alex may have been a hopeful inmate, but that didn't make him impervious to loneliness or longing. One day I, I was sitting on the back, i never forget, I was sitting on the back ledge of Spruce Unit, which is a dormitory. And it was my birthday. And I didn't get a phone, you know, I didn't get a card. How many years were you in Angola at that point? That kind of, was, I was finished with my appeals. So at this point, I'm probably seven years in, right? It's very early, but I'm on the backstop of uh, Spruce. And I, it was my birthday. I, I, 
I didn't get a card, right? And I decide uh, to try to call home. Actually, my family had cut the phone, had changed phone numbers on me and everything. And so I said, let me go and just try. And so I went in and I dialed uh, home and I got the same response, you know, do-do-do-do, sorry, just phone call, you know, dozen of seven calls. And so I hung it up and I walked outside and I was, I was, I was really hurt uh, by that. Can I ask you, what were you searching for when you called your family on that particular birthday after all those years? I don't think I was searching for anything. I probably just wanted it just to hear their voice. You know, see how they were doing. Um, and I, I didn't get it. What he did get out of that phone call was a reality check, as if he needed one. That put me in a position I, at a, you know, that, that struck in my brain, either I'm going to sell or fail. I mean, I had friends in Angola who killed themselves, literally committed suicide. I have friends in Angola who were strung out on drugs. Wasn't drugs, they wasn't, they didn't take drugs before they got the Angola. But when they got the Angola due to the stress and the trauma, they're strung out on drugs. I got friends who went crazy. They're on all type of psychotic medications. I saw friends who gave up their own, we call it humanity. You know, I was like, man, you know, but I, I, was, I was fortunate to have a, a certain constitution about myself to say I wasn't going to fall prey to that. It was after that attempt to contact his mother that Alex says he changed his mentality and outlook. He hung up the phone. He went outside to one of the prison yards. And I remember walking around the yard. It hit me. And this was the conversation I had to myself. i would never forget it. I said, they sent you here to die, and they want you to be miserable. And I was talking about society at large. I said, you're not going to be miserable. You're not going to die here. You're going to make the best out of the situation starting today. And from that day, I purposely worked to better myself and make the best out of the environment in which I was placed in at that time. You make it sound, and I don't want to use this word, but I don't know what other term to use. You make it sound relatively easy that you flipped a switch in your mind and said, I'm going to survive this harsh, nightmarish environment in Angola and make better of myself. Was it that easy? No, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that easy at all. So that that statement that I had made when I was walking along the fence at the time was not a spiritual or religious nature statement. It was, it was a statement of opposition. Defiance. Defiance, yeah. I was saying to myself that a system has placed me here and this is what they want me to endure. And I'm not going to give that system the pleasure of me suffering the way they want me to suffer. That was my way of resisting, my way of fighting back psychologically. And so that's what that statement was really about for me at that moment. Alex would have to revisit that statement of defiance time and time again. 
Time was really all he had. He was serving a life sentence. But it was after flipping that mental switch that Alex would eventually rediscover his relationship with God and carve out a new pathway through prison. In next week's episode, Alex makes another crucial choice in his life and enters Angola's seminary program. And I'll introduce you to someone who's been bringing faith to Angola for many years. He'll describe how this notion of moral rehabilitation has brought tangible results in one of the roughest prisons. We wanted the inmates, not the ones who were going to church. We wanted the ones who had nothing to do with church, the worst of the worst. That's next week on the podcast. For WWL Radio, I'm Tan Trung.